Welcome to the show, and especially big welcome to anyone who's coming from My First Million. For those who didn't see, My First Million is running a little experiment. They're playing some episodes of How to Take Over the World, and uh, we're going to see how it goes. And uh, if it goes well, then we're going to keep playing episodes on their feed. It's a big podcast for those who don't know. In the tech and entrepreneurship space, it's actually one of my favorite podcasts. If you are into business, if you're into making money, if you're into tech and entrepreneurship, I suggest you check it out, My First Million, wherever you get your podcasts. But uh, it's an exciting development for how to take over the world, and it should mean a slightly bigger audience, and uh, and therefore I can rationalize dedicating more of my time to this. So uh, yeah, expect to see uh, a few more episodes going forward. Before today's episode, ask yourself, what if there was a formula for genius? What if you could engineer in a lab, a Caesar or a Mozart or a Picasso? This episode's about a man who not only theorized that this was possible, but did it three times. And you'll have to excuse me, but this one is a somewhat self-interested episode. I had my first child nine months ago, and uh, yeah, that is one of the reasons that production of this podcast slowed down for a little while. But now that I have a daughter, I'm thinking about how to raise her, and it got me interested in the story of a man named Laszlo Polgar. Laszlo was a Hungarian educational psychologist who studied the idea of genius. He believed that anyone could be trained to be a genius. And then he went out and proved it. He made his daughters his test subjects, and his three daughters went on to become three of the greatest chess champions of all time. And so obviously, as someone who's trying to figure out how to raise my own daughter, this story was interesting to me. And so I think it can teach us something about how to raise a genius, how to help teach someone else to be a genius, but also something about how to be uh, a genius yourself, how to be great and successful yourself. So even if you don't have children, I think it's a worthwhile episode. So let's jump into it. Laszlo Polgar was born in 1946. He got his first degree in philosophy, his second in psychopedagogical education, which is just a fancy way of saying he studied the psychology of different teaching methods. He had a successful career as an academic and teacher and eventually got his PhD with a dissertation on the development of capabilities. In other words, he did his PhD on the idea of genius and developing geniuses. This really was his life work. But his interest was more than academic and professional. He had a personal interest in the subject and read the biographies of more than 400 famous and successful thinkers, 400, from Socrates to Einstein. And he tried to kind of piece together what were the common links between them. So obviously I love this guy. He was doing his own personal version of how to take over the world. And I feel like it's a major validation of my theory that studying these people is worthwhile. So anyways, after studying all these biographies, he became convinced that anyone could become a genius with the right training and education. So he decided to put his theory to the test and he dedicated his life to tutoring his children and raising them to be geniuses. One problem he had is he didn't have any children yet, but luckily he found a woman who was willing to go along with his experiment. And fortunately, they also fell in love. So they got married and dedicated their lives to raising and educating children in a way that Laszlo believed would give them the best shot at becoming geniuses. This was supposed to be the ultimate test of his theory. Can you really raise anyone to be a genius? Well, he's got three little lab rats that he can test his theory on and, and see what the results are. For the area of their specialization, where they would become geniuses, 
he chose the field of chess. He chose chess primarily because it's easy to measure. He considered mathematics, languages, and other disciplines, but decided on chess because of its objectivity. You have winners and losers. With mathematics, you can see how there could be like some politics involved. If you're in academia, you could say, you know, my daughter, I raised her to be a mathematics genius, but that's really difficult for the outside public to evaluate. And there's always some politics involved of, you could say, well, you could have certain academics who are jealous saying, well, you know, her paper really isn't that interesting or isn't that much of a breakthrough. But with chess, you know, you have rankings. You can see how good someone is by their win and loss record. So if Polgar's method worked, his children would be top ranked chess players and no one could dispute that. So it's an objective measure. You can look at the leaderboards and see if his daughters are there, then they really are geniuses. As he began teaching his daughters as young children, he encountered enormous opposition from the political and chess establishments in Hungary. On the political front, Hungary was communist at the time, and as such, private education was very much frowned upon. It was seen as elitist and working against equality for all. And if you think about it, you know, if private education is a bad thing to the authorities in Hungary, then what about private education that is specifically designed with the end goal of creating geniuses? That's going to seem like even more outlandishly elitist, right? And anti-communist. So Laszlo had to fight tooth and nail to get the right to educate his own daughters. He was absolutely dogged in petitioning for his right to do so and explaining why, no, this is actually good for the state of Hungary and for communism. And even so, he was often willing to work in the gray area where it was kind of unclear if he was breaking the law. The chess establishment in Hungary at the time, as I mentioned, also opposed him in large part because he didn't have any sons. He had only daughters. And they really thought of chess as a men's game and something that women, especially young girls, should not be interested in. So they were kind of discouraged from seriously pursuing chess. And he had other obstacles as well. He didn't exactly have a huge budget as an academic who was committed to staying home and instructing his daughters full time. He didn't have a lot of money. He raised his family in a very modest, a very small apartment in Budapest. And from my reading, I actually don't know how he got by. It's unclear if he was receiving grants or maybe he had saved a little money. I don't think he was teaching very much at the time, if at all, because he was full-time tutoring his daughters. So from my reading, it's a little bit of a mystery how he made money, but it is clear they weren't living large. Uh, he was really making sacrifices in order to do this. What little money he did have, Laszlo spent on loads of chess books. And not just books, but he had this entire card filing system that he developed himself, where he would catalog different chess positions, whether openings or mid-game or end-game moves. And uh, the girls could consult this encyclopedia of chess whenever they wanted. Uh, you can see pictures of their little Budapest apartment. And it is, <laughs> it, it's small and there's a lot of material. It's like really overflowing with, with books and, and all this chess information that he prepared for them. And this was a situation that he would raise his three daughters in. As his youngest Judith would later say, quote, everything was about chess. And the results were pretty astounding. He had three daughters, as I mentioned, all three went on to become incredibly successful chess players, top players in the world. The oldest, Susan, who was born in 1969, her career started really early. She won the Budapest Under 11 Girls Championship at age four. I don't know if you know any four-year-olds in your life right now, but that's incredible. Age four. She was able to beat her father, Laszlo, at chess at age five. So that's when he took her to the local chess club in Budapest, and she started beating accomplished local chess players. She won the World Under-16 Girls Championship at age 12, and by 15, she became the top-rated women's chess player in the world. At age 22, 
she became the third woman to ever be granted the title of Grandmaster, a highly coveted title in chess. I mean, it's really hard to become a Grandmaster, especially, you know, as a woman, as we mentioned, in, in a country and in a chess establishment that is kind of discouraging your progress. That's very, very remarkable. Laszlo encouraged Susan to mostly compete against men. So she mostly entered in men's tournaments. And so she wasn't necessarily winning the championship every year, but eventually she did decide to compete in women's tournaments as well. And in 1996, when she finally did, she won the women's world championships. Uh, and, and I think quite easily. In 2002, Susan became the first woman to win the U.S. Open Blitz Championship against a field which included seven grandmasters. She won that title again in 2005 and in 2006. The second pole guard daughter, Sophia, was born in 1974. She was the world junior under-20 rapid champion in 1986. Also in 1986 at the under-14 championships, which was a boys' tournament except for her, she took second place and was declared the world girls' champion by virtue of the fact that she nearly won the boys' tournament, which was much more competitive. In 1989, at the age of 14, Sophia won an elite chess tournament in Rome against a bunch of middle-aged men who were very accomplished, and many of them were grandmasters. This became known as the Sack of Rome. She was one of the top-ranked women's chess players in the world, and in 1994, finished second in the World Junior Chess Championship. Once again, not in the Girls' Junior Chess Championship, but the overall. And again, this is the least successful of the three. In 1996, she won the gold medal at the Women's Chess Olympiad, and it was the only gold medal that she won, but frankly, she would have won many, many more if it weren't for her sisters. But this was the only one that she won because it happened to be the one where neither of her sisters was competing. And, you know, to say that she's the least accomplished of the Polgar sisters is uh, is a little tough. <laughs> she might, you know, she's probably one of the top 10, certainly one of the top 20 greatest women's chess players of all time. But she was also the third best women's chess player in her own family. So that really, you know, takes some of the shine off of your accomplishments. When she was in her early teens, she decided to pick up art. And more than any of her other sisters, she has focused less on chess and more on other pursuits, including art, uh, painting, interior design, and on being a full-time mother as she raises her two children. The most successful of the three was the youngest, Judith. She was born in 1976. And she is the greatest women's chess player of all time, hands down, and it's it's not close. It's not really a debate. She won her first international chess tournament at age nine. She defeated a grandmaster for the first time at age 11. She became the youth champion of the world at age 14, girls and boys. She became a grandmaster herself at age 15. In 2005, at age 29, she achieved her career high ranking of number eight and became the only woman to be ranked in the top 10 in the world. And she became the first woman to ever qualify for the men's world title championships. She was ranked number one in women's chess for more than 20 years and only lost the ranking when she retired. So again, <laughs> she's she's like Serena Williams times two uh, in, in terms of her dominance of women's chess. So, okay, wow. You know, we got to say for our guy Laszlo, this is looking like pretty good evidence that he has it figured out in terms of how to raise genius. And by the way, many people assume that this must have been really unethical and that he drove these girls to the edge of mental breakdown in order to achieve all of this, right? But the girls are unanimous in saying that they had a happy childhood, that they're happy now, that they do now and have always lived fulfilled and balanced lives. Even Sophia, who basically gave up chess to focus on being a mother and her art, has no ill will. And she reflects on fondness with her time as a chess champion. She, she doesn't wish uh, her father had done anything differently. 
So how did he do all of this? Luckily, Laszlo wrote a book called Raise a Genius, where he breaks down his methodology for raising geniuses. And <laughs> amazingly, uh, to me, this just astounds me. The book is like not popular. It's not really studied and hadn't even been translated into English until the blogger known as Scott Alexander of Slate Star Codex paid to have it translated in 2017. The book was written in 1989, so for nearly 30 years, no one thought it was worth translating into English. And again, I know I'm kind of crazy about this kind of stuff, but I, I still just, it blows my mind that no one thought this was worth translating or, or studying. But luckily, it was translated, and it's a fascinating book, in part because it doesn't focus very much on the methodology of how to raise a genius. Laszlo actually focuses more on defending the idea of raising geniuses and, and why it should be done and explaining why anyone should do it, why you should do it. The title of the book is not How to Raise a Genius, it's Raise a Genius with an exclamation point. It's an exhortation, a, a plea for you to raise a genius. And that's because according to Laszlo, it's not hard. It's actually really simple to raise a genius. The difficult part is actually convincing people that they should do it. But if you want to, you can. Okay, so if Laszlo is saying geniuses are, are not born, they're raised, and it's not even that hard, how do you do it, Einstein? How do you raise a genius? Okay, the first step, according to Laszlo, is to begin education early. To quote from the book, he says, quote, in my pedagogical system, early childhood occupies a central place. In my concept, early childhood, that is the period between three and six years, the preschool years, are more important and much more in need of utilization than thought in the current literature. By my principle, one should begin instruction, which is, in my concept, nothing other than a serious game, at the age of four or five. Okay, so he wants to start education really, really early. And he's not just talking about general education. He's talking about specialized education in the field that the child is to be a genius in. And this is because, according to him, this early stage is when a person's brain is most plastic, most able to learn new things, to change and adapt. He, he said in his book, quote, the first characteristic of genius education, I could say the most important novelty distinguishing it from contemporary instruction and its necessary precondition is early specialization directed at one concrete field. It is indeed true what Homer said. A person cannot be experienced or first in everything. Because of this, parents should choose a specific field at their discretion. It is only important that by the age of three or four, some physical or mental field should be chosen and the child can set out on their voyage. Okay, so that is obviously much earlier than most people think about choosing a, a specialized area of education for their children. Most people don't undertake specialized education until they're in college, right? So obviously this is a much different way to approach it. How do you choose the area of specialization? So he thinks in one sense, a child can learn almost anything. So it's kind of arbitrary. A parent should maybe just decide. But also he does uh, make nods. He, he acknowledges that the child ha should have some choice. So if they really hate the field that you've chosen for them, you should change, you should switch. And you should try to, to kind of identify something that they are drawn towards or that they really like if you can. What should instruction look like when a kid is just four or five years old? I heard him mention it in that quote that it's just kind of play, but he says you shouldn't push them at all, which seems sensible. Uh, you can begin to push them a little bit, you know, encourage them to work harder after age six, but before then, learning should be all play. It should be 100% fun and enjoyable for the child. After that quote, he says, the ability to learn by play decreases after six years of age when assimilation of information becomes more difficult mental work. So obviously, yeah, after they turn six, you have to push them a little bit and get them to be somewhat disciplined, which is not to say that, you know, at age six, everything changes. And now you have to be a taskmaster and treat your child like a slave. Laszlo says, quote, 
Thus, I generally do not rigidly separate learning from play or work from hobbies at an adult level. I support doing work that one likes, which is thus an enjoyable occupation. But this can come about only when, in choosing, we come to passionately enjoy it. So that's another thing he emphasizes is a sense of play, of passion, of enjoyment of what you're doing. He calls it the unification of work and play. He says you should never tell a child, for example, hey, get to work, don't play, or the opposite. You shouldn't say to them, you know, play, have fun, don't, don't work so hard. Uh, they should never get the idea in their head at all that work is the opposite of play, that they're mutually exclusive. You should try to get in their head that work, the thing that they're studying, this, this main thing they're specializing on, is fun, is play. They're the same thing. The other thing he strongly recommends is specialization. He thinks, you know, we already mentioned that, but he thinks in early childhood, kids should spend five to six hours per day studying a single subject. And the immediate objection by many people is, whoa, if you specialize kids this young, aren't they going to be like one dimensional and not well-rounded? You know, if you're spending that many hours per day on a single subject, think of all the things they're not learning. Think of all the experiences they're missing. And it's worth pointing out that all of his daughters speak between five and eight languages were fantastic athletes. Judith in particular could have become a professional table tennis player if she wanted. They were great conversationalists, wrote various articles and books. They're generally engaging people with varied interests. As previously mentioned, Sophia went on to become a painter. So it's not like they were chess robots. I don't think you could say from looking at this experience that any of his kids were one dimensional or were missing out on big life experiences. And yeah, obviously according to Laszlo, no, specializing doesn't make you one dimensional. In fact, by learning to do one thing extremely well, you teach yourself and you teach your child how to learn, how to set yourself up to learn subsequent things and uh, so they can have success in other fields. He brings up the Seneca quote who said, who is everywhere is nowhere. And it's true. The person who just sort of dabbles in everything oftentimes actually doesn't learn how to do any of those things well and is probably less well-rounded than the person who specializes, at least to some extent. And so again, I said that Laszlo's methodology is like pretty simple, pretty easy, and that's really it. Those are the main points of genius education, according to Laszlo Polgar. One, start early. Two, specialize. And three, the unification of work and play. Help them love what they do. He does have other minor notes on genius education. I'll just run through some of them really quickly. He says that the optimal state for high performance or optimal performance is relaxed and aggressive. And I have tried to bear that in mind whenever I'm doing something. I'm trying to keep it in mind right now as I'm narrating this, but I think it's a really great head state to try and put yourself in. Aggressive, you're looking for opportunities, you are kind of leaned forward, you're attacking, you're aggressive, but you're relaxed. You're not too intense. You're not going to psychologically break down if things don't work out. So I just think that's a really smart way to think about the optimal head state for, for high performance, relaxed and aggressive. Another note, he says, quote, an intensive collaborative contact between the child and an adult must be formed in which the child does not feel subordinate. Okay. So in other words, the instructor, the tutor, or if you yourself are instructing your child, you should kind of put them, treat them almost as a peer. They shouldn't be made, made to feel subordinate. He also says that a child should experience success early and should not experience failure too often. In other words, if you got a kid playing soccer, football for our friends outside of North America, don't put them in the super advanced league where the older kids are way more athletic than them and just dominating them. Like, sure, it, it might be good for them on some level to get used to playing against superior competition. But according to Laszlo, it's going to do more harm than good because it's going to crush their confidence. So especially when they're young, you should keep them at a level where they get used to winning and then only move them up a level 
when they're ready to start winning on a regular basis at that level too. Laszlo also thinks every child should learn chess and every child should learn a foreign language, no matter what they're specializing in, because according to him, it's an easy way for them to master a new skill and teaches them about learning. So anyway, those are some of the minor notes that I took, but uh, those three things are really the heart of his pedagogical theory. Start early, specialize, unify work and play. And once you start looking at the world through that lens, you see it everywhere, especially when it comes to children specializing early. So if you look at history, many of the great ones started their specialized education really early. For example, Serena and Venus Williams, two of the greatest women's tennis players of all time, started serious tennis instruction from their father at age four, which, you know, meets that time deadline that, that Laszlo put out. Their father, Richard Williams, later said he thought he started them too early and wishes that he hadn't started them so early. But according to Polgar, no, he's wrong. Starting them so early was actually one of the things that gave them such an advantage. Mozart began playing the piano at age four and began composing at age five. There's a, this is just a side note, but there's a great story about Mozart that uh, someone comes up to him on the street and says, uh, you know, Mozart, how do I, uh, how do I begin to learn to compose as well as you? And Mozart says, well, how old are you? He says, I'm 22. And he says, oh, you're too young to start composing already. He says, I'm too young. You started composing when you were only five. And Mozart says, yeah, but I didn't run around asking someone how to do it. Uh, okay, but that has nothing to do with anything. Uh, John von Neumann, possibly the greatest mathematician of all time, began his math education around age four or five. I actually couldn't find when he began his education, but uh, it is recorded that he was able to divide six-digit numbers by the time he was six, which means, obviously, he had to start serious math by at least age five. Picasso was the son of a painter and a painting teacher, and his first word was piece, short for lapis, the Spanish word for pencil. He began his formal painting education at age seven, but was already receiving informal instruction from his father by age five. And so I could go on, but it is actually really remarkable as you look through history, how many geniuses began learning their art or their field of study by the age of five. It's not all of them, of course, but Laszlo definitely seems to have a point here that it really helps. But as I mentioned, the rest of Laszlo's book is a defense of the idea of intentionally raising geniuses. I think the idea needs to be defended Whenever I have brought up the story of the Polgars to friends and family and asked them if they think I should raise my daughter to be a genius, they have reacted with shock and borderline disgust and horror. So I do think it's important to outline his defense of why it's a worthwhile project. He begins by quoting the Scots-English historian and polymath Thomas Carlyle, who wrote, quote, everything that we see realized in this world is nothing more than the external result, the practical realization the embodiment of thoughts that lived in eminent people throughout the world. The soul of the full story of the world is, we may assert, their history. So according to Carlyle, and probably according to Polgar as well, when it comes to pushing their field forward, geniuses don't contribute two or three more times than the average person. They contribute something more like a hundred times more than the average contributor in their field. So our history, uh, our culture, our society, science, art, everything is pushed forward monumentally by these geniuses. As Polgar says, quote, a genius is a collective creation who becomes a communal treasure. Okay, so if geniuses are such a treasure, why doesn't anyone wanna raise one? Why, why don't all people do this? Well, here are a few of the objections that Laszlo raises and responds to, and I have heard a lot of these as well. So we'll go through them one by one. First, the idea that geniuses aren't well-rounded. I already addressed this a little bit. Obviously, I believe that this does not need to be the case. The geniuses can be 
well-rounded. I mean, I, I think it's funny. Like, if you look at the Olympics, do you think that the average Olympian has read more or fewer books than just your average person? Let's say your average American, since I live in America. And I'm willing to bet that it's more, that, that your average Olympian is more well-read than your average person, right? So I just think this is not true at all. People who specialize in who are great at one thing tend to also be pretty good at other things. They tend to be more well-rounded than your average person. And uh, obviously we see this with the pole guards who are incredible linguists and uh, athletes and, and other things as well. You might ask yourself, like, how is this possible? How do you have the energy to do all these things? How do you have the energy to become the top women's chess player in the world and still have time to be a competitive ping pong player and learn five languages? And uh, I mean, obviously my first answer is I don't know. I've never done it. But I do think that it comes from this idea of the unification of work and play. So they were spending five to six hours a day, not in drudge work that they hated, but in playing, in doing things that they loved. So instead of sapping their energy, as normal school does, it gave them energy. When they were done playing chess for six hours, they had plenty of energy to do athletics or study languages or study anything else. The other objection that you often hear is that these geniuses are going to be miserable. You know, you're just going to be worked to the bone. They'll have no friends. They'll have a horrible relationship with their father who's pushing them way too hard. And they'll have these miserable lives and their childhood will be stolen from them. Now, all three Polgar girls refute this. They all say they're happy. And Laszlo refutes this in his book. He writes, quote, I do not assert that the way of genius leads necessarily to happiness, but indeed that it is more likely to than otherwise. As it concretely concerns my daughters, they confirm, thank God, this last assertion. Those who think otherwise do not seem to have enough information or maybe are envious or jealous. My daughters are in fact fulfilled, joyful, happy people. Those who know them personally can confirm this. I will say that I understand why people would have this concern. We've all seen the father who wishes he had been a baseball star. So he berates his son, forces him to practice baseball all the time because he's trying to live his dreams through his son. Or sometimes it's the mom uh, here in the United States. It's the cheerleader mom who's, who's forcing her daughter to do cheerleading all the time. But, you know, that's not Polgar's method at all. You've got to do it for the benefit of the child, according to Laszlo, and not for your own benefit. It's got to be something that they enjoy doing and you can't force them to live out your dream. And obviously we see this in his idea of the unification of work and play. If they're not enjoying it, then it's just not going to work. Okay, so geniuses can be well-rounded. They can be happy. What other objections are there? Um, the last objection that I hear all the time is that they will be weird. That these geniuses won't be like other kids, right? So who, who cares if uh, they're successful or they're happy? Okay, I'll grant you that they might be, they might be successful at this and they might be happy but they won't be like other kids. And this is the one criticism that I actually think is true. One reporter asked Laszlo's neighbor if the Polgar girls were happy. And the neighbor responded, quote, certainly, although maybe in other ways than other girls. In other words, yeah, they're happy, but in a little bit of a different way, they're not like other girls. They are a little different. And this is by definition true. To be great is to be weird is to be unlike other people. Alexander the Great was weird. Mozart was weird. Steve Jobs was weird. Thomas Edison was weird. Like by definition, you're doing things that other people don't do. That's what makes you a genius. And that is true of anyone who's great, not just child geniuses. So you can't be afraid of people looking at you sideways and asking why you're like that. And that's my final message for this episode. Whether it's raising a child to be a genius or trying to become great yourself, people will think it's weird, but don't let that stop you. Dare to be different 
and dare to be great. Have the courage to be great. Okay, that's it. Uh, the long-awaited Alexander the Great episode is coming. It is finally coming. Um, look for it here in the next couple of weeks. But until then, thanks for listening. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.